everyone, and welcome back to Hand Me Up podcast, a podcast where two Zimbabwean women, Rue and Gwen, in the academic space share their journey towards attaining a PhD. In this episode, we're joined by Sky, a Zimbabwean woman based in South Africa, who will be sharing her own story of undertaking a PhD. So Sky, welcome to the podcast. Okay. I mean, even though I get asked this a lot, you know, like to provide a bio or get me to introduce myself, it's one of those um, things that I'm never quite always like prepared for. But uh, so my name is Sky, uh, Sky um, Rosalind Tinevimbo Chirape. And I am Zimbabwean, born and raised, and my totem is Moyo. I'm really proud of my totem. Oh. So I'm always sharing it. So I'm originally from my, so my people originally from my shingo, like the great Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. We are, you know, okay. directly from the great Zimbabwe, you know, we have Aroji. And, uh, but I have been living in the UK now for about 17, 18 years. And currently okay. I am in South African Cape Town actually just to complete my PhD. And I am a forensic psychology scholar, and I am currently doing my PhD in psychology, you know, on human insecurity, migration, gender and sexuality, which, you know, I'll speak about a little bit more. So my background, you know, it's heavily in psychology um, a lot. We have kind of done a lot of work, like within the criminal justice system in the UK and also uh, some community work. But I also come from an activist background, and I've been an activist from like the age of what 13 12 when I was still in Zimbabwe in Harare and then in Gweru when my family moved to Gweru and it sort of like kind of started on issues so related so to gender um, inequality and you know my treatment and so as a girl sort of like kind of feeling invisible so that was sort of like kind of the thing of my, you know, um, ability, um, you know, to rebel against my family initially, and then afterwards, you know, against community, and then something that is sort of like kind of has now stayed with me even when I moved to the UK. So I've done so my psychology, um, you know, a work or as a practitioner or even you know my academic um, practice is not separate from my activism at all. So it's sort of okay. like kind of really interlinks and. You you know, okay. and you know, and um, also overlaps, but then also speaks to each other in a way. And a lot of the times, I think it's actually my activism which inspires a lot of sort of like kind of academic work. So uh, yeah, and then I have lived in the UK. I am, I suppose, you know, I could use the term queer, although I do prefer the term ancestral wife. Some people might use oh. the colonial English term lesbian. And I am still trying to figure out, especially, you know, as a Shona Zimbabwean uh, woman who's now living in the diaspora, and knowing what I know now about, you know, about gender and sexuality, um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, like, the right terminology and the right label for myself that also speaks to my own traditions and my own inheritance and my own um you know so sort of kind of cultural 
um, links, you know, as a Zimbabwean, like as a Shona. And, um, and I come from a, um, from a long line of like traditional healers as well. So my father, my grandfather was a traditional healer um, in my shingle. So I'm still trying to figure out like what that means for me and what term actually speaks, um, you know, to me. So I'm quite comfortable with the term ancestral wife, you know, for now. Uh, yeah. So uh, what else? I mean, I I'm sure. I've never heard that term before. Oh, in, oh, in, oh ancestral okay. wife. I think a lot of people in, so in Southern Africa, they use it. So they use ancestral wife. I think it has also come with the beliefs that, uh, um, you know, historically or even presently, for example, in South Africa, people that have been known to be um, either lesbian or queer, you know, have also been known to also have um, powers related to being a sangoma or like a traditional healer. You know, so it's sort of like under links to that. And there's also been the belief that sometimes, you know, um, you know, you are a chosen or a nominated ancestral wife or like a wife for the ancestors in a way, like a partner or a wife for the ancestors or, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, so sort of like in a nutshell, really, but there's a lot more to it. But it's a term that's widely used. So, yeah, so that's the one I'm using now. For now. Thank you very much. Um, right. I think we're all navigating um, labels, identity. Mm. It, it's a minefield, but I think one thing that I appreciate is I have to do what works for me and not mm. let others do the mm. defining mm. for me. So I appreciate um, your journey and how you're like saying you're exploring and really trying to understand. Mm. And then you're going to decide what you want um, mm. your, yourself as a person to be seen as or mm. understood as, as mm. opposed to letting others do the defining for mm. you. So I think that's beautiful um, in of itself. So, Fab, well, look at me saying you're based in South Africa, you're based here in the UK, but you are currently in South Africa. In, yeah, I'm currently in South Africa, yeah. And I've been here for now, it's now my second year. So I've been, okay. yeah, so I've been in, I actually moved most of my livelihood, you know, I'm here. So I'm here and I'm really enjoying that. Um, okay. I'm here. So it's cool. been nice, you know, doing my, my studies on the continent. Yeah, no, I'm going to ask you for some advice on that. Yeah. I myself am thinking of spending some time writing up um, while I'm on the continent. Mm. So I'll, I'll, if we have time, we'll include it. Yeah, we can speak more about that. Sure. Advice. Yeah. Um, on that. Right. So before we get into the PhD journey, can you please share with us what you studied prior to your PhD? So, yeah. Um, bachelor's or diploma, and then if a master's, mm-hmm. and you know, if there's any links or relations, feel free to expand on that. Um, yeah, just so we can get a bit of your background that led to um, your journey to. Yeah. So, so I did all of my secondary school in Zimbabwe. So my high school in Zimbabwe. So it's Chaplin High School. So all my Chaplin High Schoolers, uh, you know, they, they might remember me or not because I was very quiet. And because I, I was, you know, uh, some sort of like activist, a quiet activist um, in some ways, I thought at some point that I was actually going to be studying uh, something related to law, like human rights law. And, um, and, and my father actually thought is what that is what I was going to be doing, you know, that's, um, so, so in his ways, he thought that was probably where I was going to be using my mouth, uh, you know, a, a, bit, a bit better in that way. So I was really stuck on doing human rights law. Um, and then when I moved to the UK in 2001, 
for some reason I ended up going into journalism uh, for like for a year uh, but almost like you know as a diploma so like into journalism because I was also into writing so when I was in high school I used to write poetry I used to do public speaking and I come from a family of writers as well so my family is very creative so I just thought okay maybe rather than being a human rights law sorry a human rights lawyer maybe I will uh, speak to you know so sort of like kind of how I could I could link the journalism into my activism and be able to write about all of these issues that I'm really passionate about right so that's what I thought but then the first year I you know, I, I really did not like it at all. I think what I didn't like was being told what to write. And, okay. I, and I remember at the time there was a lot of stuff happening around so uh, terrorism. And, and I didn't like, you know, uh, someone else framing what I should be writing and how yes. I should be writing it. And so sort of like kind of having an idea, you know, a preconceived kind of narrative of what I should be writing about. So I, so I really struggled and then I quit. And um, and I quit, and then but then before that, before I left um, Zimbabwe, I had been volunteering so in a children's home, and I had been really stuck by how um, these um, children who were in a children's home were really, you know, who had experienced like a lot of trauma and violence and stuff, but were also really um, happy and resilient and really content with their lives. So it made me quite curious, you know, about human behavior, but then also about how we deal with you know a certain circumstances like in our lives and stuff in comparison to other people around me so that made me fascinated you know to be fascinated by human behavior so i got into psychology and then as i did my bsc um in london in psychology and it was during um, psychology that I then discovered forensic psychology because one of my lecturers um, you know who I still remember from now you know was a forensic psychologist and then I thought oh wow you know like actually that's something I'm really fascinated by and I remember having conversations with my then uh, girlfriend who was actually my first ever girlfriend who was also Zimbabwean talking about this character and then sort of like kind of talking about kind of then inspiring my own passion and me saying I'm going to be a forensic psychologist that's what I'm going to do this is my calling and I'm going to respond to this calling um, and then yeah and then and then, then that, that, that was it really and then I knew there and then that I wanted to do forensic psychology um, and then so for my master's, then I did forensic psychology um, also in the UK as well. And then I also had okay. an opportunity to start a job as a psychological assistant within the prison service. So that sort of like okay. kind of then led me into my next journey where I'd started um, training with the British Psychological Society as a forensic psychologist in training. So soon after, um, you know, my master. So this was sort of like, kinda, you know, um, um, so a practitioner program, you know, um, okay. to then sort of like kind of qualify as a forensic psychologist at the end of the training. Um, unfortunately, I didn't finish that training. I'd also even started, so a postgraduate, um, you know, practitioner, so doc doctorate, I think, you know, with Cardiff University as well um, to finish the training, but I didn't. Um, and this was as a result of all the racism that I faced working for the criminal justice system. So, yeah, it was really tough. So on my um, master's um, program, I was the only black person on it. Right. And, um, and the only other person that I actually then got to befriend was uh, from Greece. Um, so it was the only sort of like kind of migrant. Everyone else 
girls was English, so like kind of middle class. And, you know, while some people, you know, they were friendly, but I also really felt sort of kind of out of place in a way. You know, I was working class. I am, you know, refugee. I'm Zimbabwean. English is my second language. And you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was really tough. And then, of course, when I took the route, you know, the um, so the prison service route, um, similarly, also psychology within the UK is also very white, very middle class. So I was often the only black person. Um, so, so in my department, like a lot of the times, so I experienced a lot of like racism um, at work. And, um, and this is not even from prisoners, uh, which is like the shocking bit of it. It's not even from prisoners. Um, actually, I left when I started to feel safe with prisoners because I was also working with such like high risk um, offenders. So, you know, specializing so in intimate partner violence and in you know, sexual offending and, um, you know, uh, what maybe some, some of these men might be considered quite dangerous, you know, depending how you look at it. And, uh, and I was beginning to feel safe, uh, you know, uh, with prisoners rather than with staff and rather than with my colleagues. So wow. I decided, yeah, so I left. I, I, I had to, I quit for my own sanity. Yeah. But I also feel like I was also pushed out as well in a way. Um, yeah. So that's sort of like kind of my journey really to, uh, towards my master's. It was a lot. It was a lot. Just probably the reason why I'm doing this PhD in South Africa. Just, yeah, just to break away from the UK is one of the reasons. So, so you finished your master's and you say you went for, you were going to do this training with the British Psychological Association. Um, yeah, so, so um, yeah, so, so it's a training that is provided by the British Psychological Society. And, uh, yeah, so the training, you know, so you'll be titled of like a forensic psychologist in training. You know, I was working for the prison service and you'd actually be undertaking the same roles, you know, as, you know, as other forensic psychologists, um, you know, within um, that organization, but you'll be under the supervision of, a, you know, of either a chartered or registered forensic psychologist. So, yeah. So, but then while I was doing that, then I had to be finishing, um, you know, some modules, um, you know, t- you know, to sort of like kind of working towards my training. So I did this for like three years. It's quite a okay. tough training. Like it's a very, okay. I've never done anything as tough before. Wow. It's such a tough um, training. So you are, oh, you're practicing. So you are practicing as a psychologist. You're doing all the work. So my role included things like, you know, delivering intervention. So group interventions, you know, with prisoners. So it could either be related so to sexual offending or it could relate to intimate partner violence. You know, I'll be doing like, you know, what we call like psychological risk assessments. Uh, I, would, I would have to be doing like research you know, some consultancy uh, work, you know, relating to the prison service, um, you know, and then this will become like part of all these modulars, like all these modules that I'll be contributing to while I'm actually doing real work, you know, with okay. real people, um, in a way, okay. but under the supervision, you know, of someone who's already qualified, you know, and chatted. And, okay. and and throughout my experience of working in the prison service, every year I had a case for discrimination. So I was off work a couple of weeks, a lot of the times, and uh, you know just trying to really hold myself and hold space for myself, yeah. and you know and just trying to survive. And I feel like I fought for seven years, you know, trying to find 
a space that I could fit in, but also trying to finish my qualification. And then it was just really hard. Then I decided, actually it was my GP, somewhere in Norwich who actually said that if I don't leave, I will die, you know, from stress. So yeah, so she's the one who set me down and she said that if you don't leave, you know, if you continue, you know, fight, you know, fighting to remain in a place where you don't even feel wanted, and yes. you know, and, and it's really impacting you in this way. As much as you want to be a forensic psychologist, I think you still need to leave and then and then you can go on and find, you know, maybe like other routes and other ways where you can go and complete that. So yeah, so it was after that conversation I decided, yeah. Okay. In, um, enough oh, is wow. enough. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot, Haley. Yeah. Yeah. So and, yeah. How did you so you decided to leave that behind for your well-being um and so how did you then get to the phd yeah, so I decided to leave that and I was so heartbroken because uh, forensic psychology, you know, was my first love, my calling. Yes. You know, this is this is what I want to do. You know, this is what I want to do and I know it in my bones. That's what I want to do and, and I can do this and I also feel like I was quite good at it and I'm really good with people and, you know, and I can finish the training and I would be, I would make, you know, such, um, you know, like ripple effects in our community in some ways, maybe just not working for the prison service um, at all. Uh, so I was really heartbroken and I had to think about ways in which I can um, go away and heal, but then also be doing something that can still continue to make me feel like I'm still, you know, I don't know what the, like, with the right word for it. Like, I think because I'm just so used to working and I'm so used to working hard and studying and, and, you know, and being busy and doing something. And so I wanted to do something. And, and at the time, I didn't know what that something was, but I needed to take a break. I, I couldn't, I, you know, even when I left the prison service and left the, you know, the training. And when I left, I would, I'd already enrolled so at the University of, Card so of Cardiff. So I didn't want to go back into forensic psychology or even taking a different route, you know, to qualifying as a forensic psychologist. I wanted a, a complete break from it. But then I also needed to be doing something. Um, um, and then I decided then actually maybe I needed to be doing research. So this research that I'm doing, when I was doing my training and specifically when I was doing my master's in forensic psychology, I knew that I was going to be doing this research at some point. I just didn't okay. know. Yeah, I just didn't know that I was going to arrive at this decision sooner than I had realized. Right. I knew that I was going to be doing the research, but I thought that I was probably going to be contributing to this research after I'd qualified as a forensic psychologist and then when I have more authority, you know, and more power, you know, like and more qualifications behind my name and then I can do the research. Um, so then I decided actually, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for me to just sort of like kind of slightly digress, you know, uh, my journey and, you know, and do this um, research. So the research is actually, so for my um, master's in forensic psychology, I did something that was a little bit more unconventional, which was slightly outside of forensic psychology, you know, for my final research. So while these other people maybe were looking at, um, you know, initially I think I was going to be doing a research on sexual 
offending or something like that, which will be quite, you know, usual for someone who is doing forensic psychology, right? Like doing something really in like directly linked to crime, whether you're thinking about like, victims or you're thinking about perpetrators. But because I had had experience with the UK Home Office and I had had such a horrible experience with the UK Home Office where they had kept my passport initially for about six years, just sitting on it, wow. just sitting on it with no reason whatsoever, you know, and regardless of what I did, uh, they wouldn't um, give me the passport. So, and, you know, and the home office just not responding. I remember faxing and calling and just not reacting at all, not responding, not reacting for like six years. I was stuck and it had such an impact on my life because I was also like my only source of, you know, identification. So it really impacted my life, you know, it impacted my, uh, you know, uh, my journey between the degree and the master's. Then I was stuck. I okay. couldn't continue actually to do the master's, even though I got a place, but I couldn't continue because I needed to do like, what's called a Sarah B, like a security check, but I needed the passport, yes. you know, like all of those kind of stuff. And then at some point I was even homeless. I was living with friends. It was such a tough period. And, um, and then eventually then they threatened to deport me back to Zimbabwe. And then I was like, what the heck? You know, I've been writing. I've been here, you know, and, and they made it seem, I remember their letter arriving saying that I'm the person who they've been looking for all along and, and they're going to be deporting me. And I was like, where have you been looking? Actually, I'm the one. But uh, likely for me, you know, I had all this evidence, you know, I'm really good at filing stuff. So I had yes. my letters and stuff, my responses to number 10, to whatever, and all this stuff that I had done. And then I decided to go through a solicitor and I was like, actually, who exactly are they looking for and where are they looking? You know, because these are all the, the letters that I've sent. And actually, even my university, when just before I graduated for my first degree, even communicated, you know, even contacted the home office, wrote to the home office to say I need the passport, you know, because uh, at the time I had also got a job, you know, as a behavioral therapist and I had to leave it. So, um, yeah, and then, um, and then I decided, you know, so they were really serious about deporting me. And then I had um, several options. Um, and then I decided to take one of those options to seek asylum. And then of course, then okay. I was detained for 48 hours. I mean, but just like to make the long story short, it was really my experience of kind of going through the, you know, of the asylum process and okay. uh, understanding what it is and, and experiencing what I experienced, which was really awful. And also seeing how people were treated. Um, you know, that sort of like kind of really became a catalyst for my research. And I went into the system, you know, really with also like also a lot of a privilege. I understood the law, um, you know, as, okay. you know, as someone who was already like interested, like in human rights law. So I was already curious about yes. the law, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and I was already like an activist. I had a community. So even by the time that I went to Sur Asylum, I had a whole community of support, you know, and I was prepared and ready. But even though I was prepared and read and I was even prepared to be um you know to be um I was even prepared so to be detained so much so that I went in you know with a phone that I could actually have so in detention center 
And then when I was in there for about 48 hours, you know, my activist had, um, you know, um, you know, came to play. And then I started sort of kind of mobilizing people. And then as a result of that and having like a really good lawyer and also like the home office realizing like I was already like mobilizing, you know, so in detention and all that kind of stuff and trying to support other people and help other people. So and then I was then um, so released. Uh, but it was that experience that I was so shocked to my bone to realize that um, this is how some people, you know, within our communities in the UK are being treated. And, you know, yeah. and to be in this detention center in Dover and to experience that and to know that this was something that was happening within the UK, it was so shocking for me, you know, that when I went then to do my master's in forensic psychology, I decided that I wanted to highlight this, um, you know, so this issue around so detention and the impact that it has on people's mental health. But I also wanted to highlight it as well as a forensic psychology issue, you know, that people okay. are being detained, you know, in criminal, uh, like, um, so, so in prison, like, so environments, and they're being treated, you know, like criminals. And, in, you know, and in some instances, it's even worse than criminals because the environment was so awful and really, really traumatic. So that became a catalyst list for my research and uh, and then that research was so um in a way quite painful also like so a lot of the things that i unearthed um you know thankful to you know to the people that contributed to that research uh, who trusted me with their experiences who also went on and shared um further even some things that i did not even considered you know around like modern slavery you know around detention you know around sexual violence and around racism like all of this stuff that were coming up that i then decided actually i needed to do further research on this issue yeah so then when i decided for for my PhD, you know, for me, it, I didn't even have to think twice about what is that I was gonna be studying. You know, I knew. Yeah. I knew, and also like because I've always been like the kind of psychologist that wants to respond also to social issues, and also feels like you know I am being of service to my community. It just made sense that this is an issue that needs to be you know spotlighted, and these are issues that needs to be highlighted, and that we need to do research. But not only that, that we also need to do research, um, you know, by people that look like me, who've also gone okay. through this you know same experience. Someone who is a migrant, someone who is Zimbabwean, someone who's gone through the asylum process, uh, who understands yeah. what it's about, and someone who's not like just like, you know, um, middle class in the sense of like the UK kind of middle class, um, you know, so yeah, so all of those things of like kind of really became a catalyst of why this was important. Uh, and of course, you know, we all know from the media that, you know, the issue around like this, like, you know, um, court in court, like, you know, migrant crisis, that has been like, you know, the narrative that has been going on in the media. Um, and then also like with these old acts that have been, um, um, yeah, like, you know, being developed. So, so in response to that as well. So it felt like it was really important, um, you know, for me to do that research. So it's like a, such a long winded wow. explanation of how no, I write. No, no, it's, it's fine. It, it helps to give context. Yeah. Um, so when people are hearing the passion, people are hearing the, uh, they know where it's coming from. This is a, it's also a personal journey for you. Mm -hmm. And like you say, an opportunity for others to share their experiences others that look like you, that look mm. like us. Mm. Um, not 
hear it from because you've been through the process but I'm sure there's loads of other Zimbabweans that have so mm. you're not alone in that sense but for them to know that there's someone capturing these experiences and trying to change mm. using those experiences to change what others might experience in the future so mm. um, I I I completely get that and, and I appreciate you giving us um, context. I should ask though, uh, I think you've hinted at your PhD topic. Mm. What is your PhD topic? In the title, the full title is actually Human Insecurity, uh, Migration, Victimization of African LGBT Individuals um, Seeking Asylum in the UK. So I really wanted to narrow it to focus particularly on LGBT um, in a community. So the research, so in a nutshell, it's sort of like kind of you know, dealing with questions around borders and migration and then, you know, centering the experiences of specifically, you know, African LGBT, LGBTI persons, um, you know, in the UK and so like, and then within that I'll be investigating or rather I am, you know, investigating. So the broader issues around structural violence, um, you know, of that, you know, of that particular system, uh, you know, and yeah, in the ongoing conversation on the politics of uh, migration, of security, you know, of gender and sexuality, you know, and, and also like of the handling of African, um, specifically African, because I think that term already, you know, already kind of speaks volume, like African LGBTI, you know, persons, because I feel like, you know, um, I think I, I, have, I have observed how specifically African LGBTI persons have been treated very differently from like, let's say, okay. you know, other people from different, you know, countries who also be seeking asylum. Um, and then also specifically, if people are seeking asylum on basis of gender and sexual their experiences yes. are also very different from someone yes. maybe seeking asylum on basis of like either coming from like a warfare environment or you know like economic reasons or you know um you know like yeah like for other reasons and stuff so yeah so in a nutshell that is my research but i think what makes my research though um unique so one of the reasons why i ended up at um you know, at University of Cape Town, I wanted to do what is called a quote to tell, you know, um, you know, a PhD, which is like okay. a joint uh, PhD um, that you'd be doing it so on two different um, institutions. So I wanted to be doing it at the University of Cape Town in another institution in Europe, either in the UK or Sweden or the Netherlands, you know, or, or maybe German. So, so that was the, you know, the idea initially that I actually contacted maybe like over a dozen universities and I approached over 30 something potential supervisors, you know, when I was going through that journey. Uh, but I had, um, because I'm, you know, I contacted so many universities and particularly so many supervisors because in my head, I was very clear about what I wanted to do. And it had to be strongly underpinned by decolonization colonial feminist work okay. you know and for me you know this is like you know in theory um something that i had not been taught you know like during my my own undergraduate or even my master's right. you know we hadn't even looked at like you know decolonial um work at all in psychology or feminist or even like even critiquing psychology like in any way at all you know during my undergraduate or my master's uh, but 
but these were theories that you know even though I was not aware of it at the time but in practice you know I was actually doing a lot of this work in my own community or in my own activism right so I was very clear that I wanted to have a certain type of supervisor you know that speaks to these issues and also be part of a department especially when I was coming from an organization where I'd experienced so much racism you know uh, for being black for being Zimbabwean for, for being African yes. and potentially also for being queer. I, I had to make sure that I needed to be in the right environment. But most yes. importantly, that I needed to have the right supervi- you know, supervisor. And I knew that if I had the right supervisor, even if the even if the department, because I think a lot of like institutions are very colonial anyway, so they a lot of them are quite toxic in some ways. But when you've got like the right supervisor, then that supervisor can create like a safe environment for you uh, yes. where you can, yeah, so then I found this woman you know, during my research, um, you know, online, um, whose work I found online, I watched some of her YouTube talks, you know, she does a lot of work also, also on gender-based violence, you know, on decolonial feminist work. And she was based okay. at UCT, um, University of Cape Town. And I knew like, wow, okay, I want to be in this department. Like I want to be in this okay. department. I want to be at University of Cape Town. So, and yeah. And then I, I didn't even know then actually that they had a hub, which is called uh, that she had co-founded and was part of a hub called the Hub for Decolonial Feminist Psychologies in Africa. Wow. So I'm in the right place. Oh. You know, yeah. So that's I you right that's there. me right that's there. You. That is what I needed. Right yeah. So that is what I needed. I needed that to inform, you know, my thinking. I needed to be taught. And I was coming completely like, you know, um, lacking, you know, so in theoretical understanding about decolonial feminist work, particularly in psychology, so Okay, guys, sorry, let me just rewind. So where are you studying? Like, what institution are you getting your PhD from? So, so I'm getting my institution from the... So I'm getting my PhD from the University of Cape Town. So um, so I was going to... Oh, so your PhD is actually at UCT? Yes, it is at UCT, yeah. <sighs> it's at UCT, yeah. And unfortunately, you know... Um, uh, my plans for you know to be registered in another university in the UK fell through. I just I, I I did find actually quite a few people whose work spoke to my work, who were either yes. you know uh, black you know or people of color, but they were particularly people of color might also identify as people of color, and and you know and one of them is actually queer and they spoke to my work and they potentially could have supervised it, although they were all like from different departments, some of them like law and you know so it wasn't quite psychology. So there was always the question of like, but it's not psychology and psychology has got like different like theoretical frameworks and that kind of stuff. How does it work? Um, but then also like there were just like institutional processes that was very difficult to go around, you know, about doing like, a, you know, this, um, you know, this joint PhD degree, you know, like to tell some universities are not so keen. Some, some yeah. universities were not so keen because it's University of Cape Town in Africa. 
you know, so they were not so keen, you know, and stuff, which is really interesting. And then also the University of Cape Town was also not keen on some of the universities that I was going to go with because they were not Cambridge or Oxford or whatever. I don't know. They were not like on this list of like, you know, highly um, recognized, you know, universities. So okay. UCT was just like, we are known for our research output and whatever. So we are not going to be, you know, we don't want to be. So it was a like little bit like tricky for me to, really um and also there was the issue of funding i didn't have funding so in the uk it was much more expensive and then so registering and then yeah and i really struggled to find funding like i mean we'll talk a little bit more about that and also because i didn't have funding so then i decided you know what actually i've got the right supervisor uh, and I'm in the right department. And yes, the idea of a joint PhD would have been to my advantage, especially because my PhD is, while it's, I am physically located, um, you know, in Cape Town and the PhD is being, you know, will be um, given by University of Cape Town. But actually my research, you know, is actually located in the UK because that's where I'll be like collecting yes. data, you yes. know, so it have been useful to have, you know, a physical space and to also have like, um, you know, yeah, like an institution supporting that, but that fell through and, you know, and that was okay because some of the supervisors, I was just like, no, 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 you don't have an understanding of where I want to go with this and you don't have an understanding of why I need to hold, um, you know, this population that I am asking to, you know, to co-participate, to contribute, because the people who are contributing in my research, um, you know, are co-researchers and they have um, an input into how they want their, um, you know, their, you know, their own experiences to be shared, you know, so they, I want them to yes. have control. So where some supervisors just didn't understand that. To be like, yeah, so like that kind of like attitude and idea, like didn't speak to what, how I'd envisioned, you know, this research, which for me was supposed to be also like a catalyst for healing for the population yes. was going to be decolonial and stuff. So, yeah, so I am here in Cape Town and I couldn't be any more happy again. Like yes. I, yeah, I am. Um, it was like the right place. Um, oh, I'm glad. So, okay, so how, what was the application process in fact? So you sent out all these emails to all over the world, mm. to 30 supervisors, and you've narrowed down, you're going to UCT, you can't find a partner university, mm. so you're going to UCT. So what was the application process like to, to get onto the, did you have to write a um, proposal or was it just meeting with your supervisor? transcripts and you're in like what was it like um it, it was quite simple and quite straightforward for me and it wasn't even like a lot of work um for me i think um because i had anticipated um you know the phd process particularly the application to be really tough and all that kind of stuff but it wasn't and not for me anyway i had quite a number of people who were willing to supervise the research so okay. what i just did i sent like so many emails like random emails like so many people and in my email, you know, was an introduction of like who I am, you yes. know, what my what uh, what my journey has been, you know, what I want to, to, you know, what I want to do, and sort of like kind of just giving a little summary.
summary of the research and how Wasif like kind of see it unravel and um, and then why that person you know why I think that person will be a good supervisor for the research and then and, and then for me most people sort of like then we just respond and say oh actually I would love to supervise that sounds like a really interesting research maybe we should have a conversation um, you know or we should meet up um, you know but a lot of the people were not in the UK um, so they were outside so they're like no let's have more emails you know that kind of stuff you know that kind of you know but then sometimes after the first email the second email I'll decide um, you know I, I would always gauge by how people responded to be like actually is this the right person and there was something about this supervisor from from University of Cape Town, you know, that the energy just which just came through from her email was just like very simple, but such a positive, lovely energy. And I was just like, oh, and I think I, if I recall correctly, at the time that she responded to me, she actually said that she was on annual leave and stuff, but she okay. just wanted to, you know, but she responded to me and, uh, and then she was going to get back to me. And I think she said to write to her again or something like that when she's, you know, when she back so even though I had been writing to other people and other people were responding I put her email outside I was like oh there's something about this email and this person so that sort of like kind of led me to do even more research about her then I was like I want to and I want to be supervised by this woman. You know, I am really, I became a big fan of her work, even though her work is actually completely different from mine. So her work okay. is mainly so on gender-based violence. And I'm coming from a, like a forensic psychology, you know, but also like migration. Like there's a lot of like yeah. things that are in there, you know, that can fit in from like law to, you know, anthropology to like gender yeah. and sexuality, like just so many things. I could literally could be in any department in some ways uh, so but then it was really more like her methodologies you know that she was using for her own research and the fact that she was doing a lot of work you know on decolonial feminist psychologies that I feel like actually for my research I need a lot more of that I know so much about migration and all that kind of stuff like I don't need a supervisor who knows all of that but okay yeah like her expertise yeah, this is where I'm lacking and this is what I need it, it was so humbling so like you know so when I said her an email again she was like yes I'd love to supervise you now you know this is the process and the process was pretty simple you know except like you see it is a little bit slow you know sometimes people are still like writing sometimes you know like not dealing with you know uh tech and all that kind of stuff so it was a, it was a bit slow which was quite new for me you know uh but I'm, I'm yeah but I've really really adjusted to the slowness now and I really enjoy it okay. now so and then I just like you know so what I did is like I registered with the department pretty easy and then registered with the university uh, but actually I did this. So, so what I decided to do, I decided to, uh, to travel to South Africa and actually meet her before I, before I'd actually okay. registered, before I'd moved to South Africa, I traveled, I came yes. here, I met her. And I remember when I met her, you know, like she thanked me for choosing her. Like, I mean, it was just like our exchange, which just made me feel so seen and just made me feel so comfortable. And I just remember her thanking me for choosing her as a supervisor and her feeling like I was bringing, like she was like, I don't know, the term like in the UK, she was like gassing me up like a lot. And I was like, oh, okay, 
okay. This, I am definitely in the right hands. This is definitely where I need to be. Uh, but there was also this old thing. I was like, welcome home. Even though I'm not even from South Africa. So I just felt oh. so embraced. I'm like, welcome home. And, and then that was it for me. You know, I knew like there was no going back. It was going to be University of Cape Town. I, and, you know, and then I made my decision so fast. From the moment that I left my job... Wow. Within months, you know, like I, I'd, I'd already, like within months, I had got like the place for the PhD in at University of Cape Town. I knew that I was leaving UK, and I was like, you know, just like uprooting everything, coming. And I hadn't been to the continent for like what sixteen years or something like a long time, you know. And uh, and I didn't even have any links. I didn't have many links here, except like you know for some friendships and you know and things like that. But um, yeah. And it's actually been the best decision that I made for myself. But I also needed to be here on the continent, like on the motherland, you know, uh, some might say, like for my own healing. Because I felt like, you know, the prison service had broken something in me. And I think, you know, that is this is why, like, racism sometimes does, you know, to you. And I was left, like, with a lot of, like, um, well, with, you know, much less uh, self-confidence than I had arrived, you know, within, um, you know, um, within the UK prison service. You know, Zimbabwe's were quite, we usually quite confident. You know, like, we usually walk into spaces confidently. It doesn't matter whether the room is full of, like, white people. You know, yes. we still own the space and we walk in and, and this is this was the person who had left Chaplin who when walked into the criminal justice system confidently, you know, knowing that I can be a forensic psychologist or I can be anything. And I feel like I love Zimbabweans, that's sort of like kind of how we've been raised. Like you can be anything that you want to be, if you want to be yes. that, you know, in some way, especially if you're coming from like a you know an academic family background or like any family background, you know, like if you've got like the opportunity or the resources, like yeah, you can go be a doctor you can go and be a lawyer you know and stuff you can do why not you know so and so's son daughter next door went and did it you can go do it you know but i feel like some of that was really shattered in me so by the time that i left the criminal justice system grand my like myself um efficacy had been shattered my self-confidence had was zero like zilch you know i was suffering for like panic attacks and anxiety questioning myself questioning my own intellectual ability you know like like all of this stuff to be like, oh, you know, like, can I even do this? So I needed to be on the continent to rebuild some of that. Uh, even more so, you know, I needed to be around a community of academics that could also hold space for me, like in ways that are like really non-toxic. And, oh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't. I mean, like, if anyone wants to know more about this hub, which is called, like, if anyone is, like, in Southern Africa or even outside of Southern Africa, you know, like, the hub for decolonial feminist psychologists in Africa, which is within, you know, University of Cape Town, co-founded by, you know, Professor, um, you know, uh, Floretta Bunzaya, who is my supervisor, as well as, you know, uh, Professor Shose Kesi. Oh, it's, they're doing some amazing work. And they are also, I will definitely check it out. you should definitely check it out. And they are also raising, 
and building, you know, um, amazing um, academics, you know, and I don't know if they're even realizing that they are mothering a lot of us. We are coming from places, you know, like wounded and they come, we're going into that place and they're mothering us like intellectually, you know, academically and building us. And, and I have grown so much, you know, um, spiritually just by being here and emotionally, but also academically, because it made me realize that I knew nothing. I knew nothing, you know, I knew nothing till, you know, till I arrived into this department and a lot of the stuff that I knew were very kind of like, you know, very specific, you know, to forensic psychology. I knew nothing about like decoloniality or like decolonial frameworks. I knew nothing about feminism. You know, I knew nothing literally. And it was humbling to realize that I am coming with this, like, um, you know, like on a plain slate and yeah. and I'm learning so much as a result like in the last two years I've learned so much and I've also had access to opportunities I'm teaching you know I've got like this um you know I am like this senior role and I'm just doing my PhD like you know as a lecturer teaching you know postgraduate political psychology you know which um you know so the theories I didn't think that I I was not confident enough that I could teach this but they recognize that I actually in practice a lot of my activism and a lot of my practice um you know spoke a lot to a lot of these issues and so yeah so it's been wonderful being here um so i was actually gonna ask this guy what department and faculty are you are you in yeah so i am in the um social sciences so 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 the humanities faculty humanities yeah so humanities and in the psychology department so yeah i've been psychology through and through like from my degree psychology psychology it's just i've just sort of like kind of brand so my first degree was psychology is just that um for my master's i sort of like kind of you know specialized so forensic psychology seem more as you yeah so you have you know specializing and and i and this is something that because that's my first love so i'm i'm still thinking about whether I can, you know, like how I can go back into it without doing like the prison service route and whether do I want to do that in the UK, you know, um, whether do I want to do like clinical psychology because I I, I would love to finish the qualification in some ways, um, you know, because it's also like work that I'm really passionate about. So I'm still... So I'm still trying like to figure it out, but I also want to have a baby, you know, like you can't just be studying, 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 studying all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, don't get me started on that one. I literally, I've kind of just put my head down and said when I finish, then I'll start. Yeah. Like I was saying to you when we got on, my head doesn't have capacity to think outside of my thesis. Yeah. Trust my like even just doing admin or meeting people or socializing, I don't have enough headspace. Yeah, I just need to write my my thesis. So I hear you. I hear you on that. Yeah, I think for me, one thing that I um, what I'm finding quite interesting is um, with your research, be you being in South Africa and your research being about the UK mm. uh, or people's experiences in the UK um, 
how are you doing your data like are you at the stage of doing your data collection like yes i am i'm right in the middle of it that has been so what i you know i had planned that my phd was only going to be three years um yeah also like for me the phd i think like one thing that i should probably say for me like i feel like the phd process was going to be easy peasy in which in 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 which it has been for me So I I thought I'm going to finish this in three years, maybe even two and a half years. So I had planned it that, uh, you know, last year was going to be me collecting that. And I I only say this, you know, just to clarify this, it's because my training, Gwen, as a forensic psychologist in training, had been so hard that the PhD is so easy for me. Like, it's a break. It's it's like, it's a breeze, to be honest. (laughs) I am breathing and it's a breeze and I'm relaxed and because my training was so intellectually demanding so physically demanding like demanding in so many ways it was so hard it was very very hard it was just very very demanding Um, also because of the kind of environment as well you know working in the prison service like so many issues that kind of contribute to why you know it was really challenging so it's really not for everyone so I think coming from that foundation you know I could have taken anything and the PhD for me is easy. I don't, and I say this to people and people look at me like, what do you mean? And it's not even like showing off or anything like that. Or it's not even that I'm smart or any, oh gosh, like, no, I'm like so average, you know, in my intellectual ability and, and whatever have you. It's just that I was coming from a very hard and tough environment that this yeah, feels even, like it's a breeze. Yeah. When you said all PhDs, I'm like, please, I'm like, Sky, are you doing the same? But once you explained that your yeah. training was like a whole lot, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Because I'm definitely on, I don't think a PhD is, is hard. I don't think hard is the right word. It's just a very lonely, um, mm. you have to be consistent. Mm. It's, it's, we always say this. It's not about intelligence, it's about passion, commitment, mm. and consistency. Mm. If you can be consistent in reading, writing, and be passionate about what you're doing, mm. and you're committed, you'll be fine. Mm. You don't need like to be like the most intelligent person in the world. Yeah. Just no. no, you don't, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I thought last year, you know, so I actually traveled to the UK early last year, around February, March time, and I had meetings for with two organizations to actually start to engage, you know, co-researchers and collect my data. So I had it planned. Right. Last year was my year of like collecting data. I was coming to the UK six months, bang, bang, get it done, and then come back and then start writing, submit this year. You know, so I had my plan and then the pandemic happened. And actually, you know, so I traveled to the UK in March and I was only there for three days because I needed to come back and teach. And it was one of the few flights around. Some people were actually on my flight tested positive for COVID, you know. So it was around that time that everything sort of like just kind of like erupted around COVID. And then, of course, I couldn't come back. Yeah. 
I couldn't come back. And then I took a break. I was like, okay, you know, fine. So I cannot go back to the UK. Well, I think it's only going to be like six months. So, you know, I'm going to just like start writing on some of the chapters and then I'll revisit it. Six months, I'll be in the UK. Oh, it's been ongoing. It's been ongoing since then. So last year, end of last year, I had to revise. Um, you know, also because my research, you know, is underpinned by a lot of like, you know, decolonial feminist like methodologies and practices that needed yes. me to be in the UK. You know, people like they're co-researchers, yes. they're not participants. I was going to be doing like, you know, these gathering circles, people are going to be like collecting their own data, you know, and I was going to be putting together, um, you know, a team of like, you know, well-being practitioners to like traditional healers to people who do like body okay. work and sound work, you know, like all of this stuff, like to provide psychological support like I had a plan you know and that just like fell through in a way and then I had to think about okay around November December so now I need to do some of that online but then I'm okay. trying to engage uh, people from a community who in the UK have also been most impacted by COVID you know, yes. people, are, you know, they're sick, they're in the process of seeking asylum. So people, are, they are homeless. Some people are in detention center. Some people are in like hostels and a lot of people are starving, you know, actually. So it was really like, oh, you know, is this even possible then to even do this online? And even people not even having Wi-Fi or access to data or even, you know, access to hardware, you know, like, you know, things yeah. like an iPhone that we take for granted that WhatsApp, yeah, no, you know? No, I know exactly what you mean. So, I, yeah. I but some, yeah, so I had to revise. So now I am, I'm, I'm doing my... You know, some of them are so. So people have, you know, they have a choice on how they want to contribute. So some people are contributing via interviews. So I interview them. We have a conversation, you know, where we share. I'm also including myself in the research, by the way, because I went through the process. So I didn't okay. want. So I wanted to also like work through the whole like hierarchs of like the researcher, the researched, and all that kind of stuff. But then also so that our interview okay. is more like an exchange, you know, rather than like you know like what you said earlier than me sort of like kind of extracting you know uh, knowledge yes. and also like you know with the understanding and respect that I'm sharing knowledge you know because they are giving me knowledge right to at the end of the day I'm going to have this PhD so but also need to hold this knowledge and we also need to to share because they're sharing some of their most difficult and traumatic experiences Maybe. but then how am I you know, also like being vulnerable in that space, you know, in, in a way like together. Um, so yeah, so people have a choice of how they want to contribute. So some people have been writing and sending me the experiences or they've been recording themselves, you know, voice memo sending to me or interview and that kind of stuff. So we have, we've had to work it through with, um, with people that were contributing about how they want this to happen, like what works for them uh, best um, in a way. So I've been doing that. It's been a very, very slow process. Um, naturally, also because a lot of people are also struggling with mental health, you know, it was like suicide ideation. So I've had to prioritize their mental well-being to be like, okay, so how can I provide support? Like which organizations or networks can I link you to? And then, and then with that stuff, like kind of on putting my research, you know, on the back in a way. Okay. So like not prioritizing my research, but prioritizing their well-being or prioritizing, you know, their need to eat, you know, sometimes even people not yeah. having things like, you know, 
know, sanitary towels or things like that, you know, so someone has shared with, with you, you know, something like that, you know, like their own difficulties and challenges. I was like, okay, forget the research now, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, so I've now also included, um, you know, sort of like kind of to balance and to make sure that I've got enough people participating. I've now included, um, you know, actual solicitors or lawyers who are working on, um, you know, on migration cases. Um, and I've also included so NGO workers or like people who are working with different organizations in the UK supporting people seeking asylum. So that it's now it's not initially it was only going to be people seeking asylum contributing and their voices being louder, you know in those contributions. But then now, because I know that a lot of people are, you know, are struggling with mental health. So like, I can get some of that information elsewhere, but still being able to use the research to doing like practical work. So it feels like I'm collecting data, but I'm also doing the actual practical psychological work. And also some of the practical, like, you know, um, you know, like advocacy work as well, like alongside that, because I realized that, you know, those things cannot be separate from each other um so yeah so that's been going well and it's been people have been generous actually with the experiences some really difficult experiences but they've been so generous and they've also been generous with their ability to even care for me as well and i was saying this to my colleague to like i'm having people checking in on me you know they're going through the most in the uk they're struggling they're homeless and yet they're taking time out of their day to be like sky but how are you doing you know we're sharing with you all of this stuff or like how are you doing and I was like whoa so it's really been such a you know such a beautiful exchange you know you know such a painful but then also beautiful exchange like in that way like such a human um you know um so yeah so I'm still hoping (laughs) I don't I think I'm a bit I don't know some friend of mine thinks that I'm crazy because I'm still hoping that I can still meet the three-year deadline which means oh, that, you know, submitting so by March. I'm, I've just started my, I'm now in my third year of the PhD. So, yeah. So, and I'm sort of like kind of done at least, maybe at least about two thirds of my data collection has kind of been done, but I haven't analyzed anything. I haven't written anything, to be honest. Actually, I have not written no chapters, nothing. And I still hope that I can submit in March. I don't know how yeah, that is yeah. possible, but yeah. Keep the hope alive. Sky, I have to admit to you, I'm also due to submit in March next year. Ooh. So we are in this together. Um, that's my deadline. Mm. I'm starting my next um, year of birth, an added year of having finished my PhD. I want to start it having submitted, and my birthday is 22nd of March. So. 22nd of March, right. I'm with you. Yes. Oh, with wow. I'm, I'm going to be checking well, in on you and seeing how you are doing. Other. Yeah. We can definitely encourage each other. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Just as you were speaking, <laughs> like, mm. I'm just amazed by... Because this is the sort of stuff that we talk about in terms of researchers being responsible researchers, doing your research in an ethical way. Like, like what I'm saying about even my own research, where I definitely do not have this extractive approach. But, um... So I, I love, I, I can understand where you're coming from, but it's beautiful to also hear it in reality and that you 
take to this understanding through your own life experiences mm. and I did the same like I hope all people are getting to that place mm. um, where they really think about how they interact with participants or, mm. or co-researchers when they do their data collection so that's quite reassuring hearing that that there's you know at least one other person right mm. um, who's had that thought in mind and is doing that approach um, I think for me, one thing that you kind of alluded to is you said you don't have funding, right? Mm. So are you working to fund your studies or did you have savings? Like, how is that working? And what about the balance, balancing this teaching, this advocacy, and like you say, right now, are you getting on with that? So, um, so I couldn't find funding in the UK, uh, but I think also the nature of the actual research also had to do with it. So I think, you know, when people kind of go and do this kind of research, they need to realize that when you're doing something, you know, that sort of like kind of, you know, disrupts or, you know, critiques, particularly like the UK, you know, um, you know, systems, like particularly in the UK, um, home office, the migration, you know, systems, borders and all that kind of stuff, it can be quite challenging to find people who would be like yeah we're with you you know uh we do understand that uk is very racist i mean we've already seen like a report right coming out and say uk is not very it's not racist <laughs> things like that the madness. right yeah the madness so and then when you're then you know going in and say hey my research actually you know it's you know it critiques i mean and, you know ideally of course you know we would rather that we didn't have borders at all you know that would be the ideal but because we you know that's like a long time um, you know, hope, like a futuristic goal or whatever, you know. Um, so I thought, you know, I'll just do this research, you know, see how and highlighting these um, issues, but then also like critiquing these processes, you know, around structural violence and all that kind of stuff. But of course, that's not a popular thing. I, I you know, I found out like soon enough that actually, and actually someone said to me when I had uh, sent in an application in one of the universities, I won't name which one, one of the universities in the UK. And then when they got back to me and they said, actually, you know, we wouldn't mind supervising your research. However, you know, it was, you know, uh, during sort of like, I think one of these meetings around funding and stuff, because I was also applying for funding, it was not considered popular, like my topic, like the people around. And I can just guess that these were a lot of people who were like, you know, conservative, white, middle class or whatever in that department who decided that they didn't agree with the issues that I was raising, um, right. you know, that they didn't want to be sub financially supporting that. And I think that it felt like even when people were not directly saying this to me, but it did feel, I could see from some of their ways that they'll try to reframe the, you know, um, the, the research or the question or how I'm going to be doing about it, you know, so that it can be a little bit more, um, sexy, you know, it can be, you know, a, you know, it can be a, li a little bit more better it's got to digest. Yeah. A little bit more palatable, a little bit better for other people to digest. It can be a little bit more, you know, digestible. And I was like, nah, so I couldn't, I, it was such a struggle to find funding, such a huge struggle. Uh, so what I did, I did like a GoFundMe. Uh, 
I did a GoFundMe and my community came through. Like my community oh. came through. And there's actually a lot of people who are who are actually queer themselves or LGBT, some of them, you know, migrant or whatever view, who were supporting from the activist community, artists who understood, you know, the need for this type of research. They were like, we got wow. you. You know, they came through. I was hoping to raise like 25,000. That was hard. Of course, I wasn't expecting to raise 25,000 from GoFundMe. You know, uh, I mean, I was hoping, but, you know, I also knew that also I'm also from the same sort of like an marginalized community, but also marginalized economic, economically as well. Uh, but what happened is I managed to raise via GoFundMe like about, I think I managed to raise about 3,000 pounds you know, just like just under four thousand pounds, in which like one thousand pounds of that actually came from GoFundMe campaign itself. They gave me like one thousand oh, pounds. Wow. Yeah, they said that they were identifying you know certain campaigns that were speaking to, like I don't know something, and it was part of their own campaign or part of their own program or something like that. And so that came through. And then one of my friends actually, you know, um, also did a donation and actually paid for my first year, you know, at oh, UCT. Wow. So, yeah. So that's how I managed to. But then that was still not enough. That was not even a third of what I need to be doing a PhD, to be honest. But I think what I want people to understand is just like, you can still do it. I didn't do it with much. It hasn't been easy, but you can still do it. And this is how I did it. So via GoFundMe and the private funds from this particular good friend of mine, um, you know, it came into a total of like, um, I don't know, like almost like 5,000 pounds. You know, that's sort of like kind of what I managed to raise, like in my first year. That's what I had. But then that five thousand pounds needed me to come to Cape Town, pay my first year, and also like my living cost for most of the year and all that kind of stuff. It's it's yes. not much to be honest. We you know like especially like Cape Town is like Europe, like the living cost. So it's really not much. But how I was fortunate was that my supervisor is a principal researcher on you know on a project. Uh, called, you know, so and un so unsettling knowledge production on gendered and sexual violence project, right? Which I'm also part of that project, and even though my work does not directly speak to, so it does not directly speak so to gendered and sexual violence, it actually speaks to structural violence. So it still speaks to violence and structural violence, and also like the decolonial feminist, um, you know, so frameworks and methodologies that I am applying also speaks a lot to the project. So as a result, she identified me as someone who is worth of getting funding from that. Project project which I'm also like a research assistant so that helped a lot so I managed to get funding for like the two years it was not a lot and also like you know like the rand you know it's, it's not it's not the pound it's not a lot considering South Africa is really expensive but it was it was a lot in the sense that it was enough for me to actually be able to pay for my living costs for the first year and the second year, like all of that, wow. without worrying about funding. I mean, without worrying. Wow. Of course, I, it was not... Um, 
you know, I couldn't be, and I could, I could travel. I did travel, you know, to the UK at least twice or so, you know, so, but, you know, I, I couldn't live like, you know, some sort of like, you know, luxurious life or anything like that. Uh, but then I think with most PhDs, to be honest, you can't, even in the UK, I think you get like 14,000 a year or something like that. It's, yeah. it's not like a lot considering like the cost, you know, like the cost of living in the UK. But I think where I've been fortunate is that in South Africa, it does not cost a lot. So my fees alone comes to about a thousand pounds, 300 a year. Yep. I know. I know. This is what a lot of people don't even know. And I, I was shocked. I was like, okay, I can definitely do a PhD and finish here. I can do this. I can do this. So it's a thousand, uh, about roughly a thousand three hundred. As someone who is also who's got a nationality that is Zimbabwean. So even though I'm international student, but I'm also like Sadak in you know Zimbabwean. Okay. So I pay like a, yeah like like 26000 runs or something like that so while it's you know it seems like it's a lot for people here but i know what i know about the uk and how much it is a year like one like 9000 like 10000 like 11000 a year or whatever how much yeah yeah um, yeah 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 so i thought like okay i can definitely do this i'm going to lead like a really frugal lifestyle and i just have to be really careful uh, with money and all that kind of stuff and then with a little bit of like teaching Teaching, you know, that has really helped, particularly. And I didn't even have to work a lot. I'm working like a couple of hours, um, okay. you know, a couple of hours a week, and that helps to pay for my um, fees and all that kind of stuff. But that only lasted two years. Now the third year is where the challenge is because I couldn't, I couldn't secure any funding. I still tried. Whew. Yeah, and even funding on the African continent, I, I just get the feeling as well, like, I don't know, or, I, mean, I could be wrong, but then also because, like, the research itself touches on gender and sexuality, and it's not popular on the African continent, like, talking around, talking about, like, queer issues and LGBT, depending where you're trying to get funding, it's really not very popular, so there's that as That's well, true. you know, so I couldn't secure any funding, like, for this year, so that has been a challenge. So I've had to depend on working, even though, but working is most like part-time, like in doing consultants work. Consultants work has been a savior because, you know, and, and I think this is also like, you know, so an advantage when you're sort of like kind of specialized in a certain area. And when you know where to tap in, you know, like United Nations, like you, UNDP, they always like have this like consultants and stuff. Like when you know how to tap into like consultants work, you know, that is where, and they usually pay like in chunks of money, you know, like kind of stuff and if you're lucky sometimes it comes like in US dollars and all that kind of stuff I mean I haven't had a lot of opportunities unfortunately but I've had enough to be able to survive you know where I'm, I'm not hungry you know anything like that okay. but I cannot be like going to your most expensive like sushi restaurant you know at the moment um, yeah yeah at the, at the moment, moment. yeah at the moment, yeah. At the oh, moment. Oh, wow. Oh, that's very brave of you, Sky. Like, wow, yeah. to go with uh, Mia. Look, I, I, I think it's amazing that um, I, yeah. you have embraced the whole process. You've embraced all of it. Um, I have. The, but I'm, yeah. the pain, the healing, the challenge, the you know, different environment, like you seem to fully embrace it. Like you say, you also experience personal growth, which I think is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, oh wow. So, okay. So in terms of so one thing that I did want to ask that I think I forgot it got lost in the process. You're talking about um, you know the experience that you're getting with teaching consultancy activism. Mm. and being a researcher is there like all these different experiences if someone wanted to do a PhD in your field mm. um, what would you, what would you be advising them in, in terms of eligibility or things that would make them um, put them in an, an advantage for the reality but also to get onto the program yeah I think, you know, and, and I know that, you know, people get into PhDs for different reasons, you know, and of course, I'm not going to judge anyone for whatever reasons they're getting into it. Um, you know, for me, you know, the focus wasn't so much like the PhD. It was really, it was actually me wanting to respond to these social issues, right? And feeling so strong about it and feeling so passionate that I needed to speak about and speak to and I needed to highlight and, and it was coming from a place of, it was actually my anger driving this need to do this research uh, anyway and similarly as well for my uh, masters for my masters in forensic psychology it was almost kind of perceived you know as a rebellious you know so it was called as a rebellion for me to actually be doing um, you know a thesis in forensic psychology but looking at you know was called looking at the subject that I was looking at so for me the things that were guiding the the PhD. I mean, I knew I was going to be like, you know, doing some sort of like doctorate at some point because that's where sort of like kind of where I was headed with my training anyhow. And within that, I knew that I was going to be contributing to research in, in some ways because there aren't many people like us that are also part of the conversation, you know, of producing knowledge. So for me, it was coming with that understanding and that knowledge and this need to be of service to my community. So when I then started to apply for a PhD, when I got the PhD, you know, it's been, um, you know, guided by certain questions. And I've kind of, re- I've written a paper actually um, on this, which is which is going to be published. Like I had to ask myself certain questions like, who is the PhD for? You know, I had to sit with that. Like, who is this PhD for? You know, and I think it's important for people to be clear about that. I mean, that's for me anyhow. You know, even if it's, it's for you, for fun, or to while up time, or, you know, uh, a hobby, or, you know, for, for whatever reasons, but at least to be clear, you know, about who the PhD for. Because I think that really kind of paves your path and it sort of kind of makes, um, you know, your journey, you know, in so enjoyable because you're clear on you know on who you you know on why you're doing that phd and so for me it was really more about this phd is for my community you know this phd is for my community and is to respond to these issues and as a result knowing that then was going to then sort of like kind of lead me to further questions about then then the how how am i going to be doing this you know, how am I going to be framing this? How am I going to be doing this? What's going to be, you know, what theories, what practices, what methodologies? And then around that, even outside of the PhD, um, external to the PhD, but then also still being related to the PhD, what other work am I going to be doing? Whether it's teaching. So everything has been intentional for me, even the teaching that I'm doing, the subject. So not just accepting any work, but also accepting work that's kind of relates to the actual PhD journey and the subject and the methodologies. Because I sat with a number of questions that I had with myself that I need to answer for myself first so that I can direct 
And I think it's important if someone is thinking about, you know, doing a PhD. And then also, sometimes people don't, I was talking to a friend of mine, you know, recently, who is also like applying for a PhD, who's thinking about going into a PhD. And then I was saying to it, go and read before you even apply. Like, you know, you're going to spend your like three years, four years working on a subject that you've just like randomly chosen because, you know, oh, you think it's nice or it's interesting, you know, and whatever have you. And then you're going to end up either hating it or like losing interest midway. Like I was like, go and do your research, read about the subject, you know, like read, you know, uh, be on top of like what's happening, where is it happening, what's being said, where, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Like, is this really what you want to be doing? And have an idea of what other that people have done you know and in have an idea for like what is it that you don't like about how it's been done or how it's been written or practice and whatever you like really you know um think about why you want to do that subject you know rather than just like picking a subject because you're going to spend and then I think we're talking about you no know, consistency and, you know, and commitment because um, I think sometimes people don't realize like a PhD then you know then if you chose a, a specific subject you're stuck with that subject right that's all you're ever going to be reading and writing on and talking to speaking about and then to some extent it's likely going to be identified as an area also of expertise in some ways and then if you don't even enjoy that subject and you don't even like that subject you know um, as much as you thought you did then that could really be an issue you know so yeah so I always advise people like read 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 you know um and then for and then for some people also like if it's inspired by your personal experience or your lived life also have these questions of like do you have capacity to be drawing because it also takes like a lot of like psychological strength you know and so you also need to do the groundwork to be like so you're drawing from your community and you know these are your experiences and they're not separate from your lived life you know um you know are you ready for this do you have capacity and also what are you going to be putting in place to hold space for you you know while least you are like reading on your lived experience and what other people have said and have not said and whatever view that kind of stuff right and then it's even more important i think one of the most important things is to find the right supervisor i know a lot of people who have not finished their phds we all know you know like it's no secret that you know that academic institutions are colonial it's no secret. It's no secret that as a result, you know, they are toxic and often they are not very supportive or welcoming, you know, to black people or migrants or queer people, whatever. They've not created safe spaces for us, right? And it's no secret that you're going to go into those institutions and, you know, and into those departments and you're going to find a lot of people that look like you, right? Yeah. So it's really important that you find the right supervisor. Uh, for me, even if that supervisor is not even well versed on the subject but is the right person I think that's more of an advantage yes. than actually because I've been yes. with people that knew their stuff in forensic psychology but sure they were so shitty it was just like you know yeah. your stuff but actually you're so toxic you know for my own well-being yeah. and my own mental well-being like I don't want to do this you know so I think it's very important to and also you know um 
have the right questions for your supervisor because I think people, you know, you know, and, and, and I, I think this also was something that my supervisor, when she, when we when when we're having that kind of conversation and she was thanking me and she was, um, you know, describing why she was thanking me and I realized that we are bringing something into the department. So be confident about what you are bringing to the department that actually, and also realizing that, you know, as much as you are fortunate to have the supervisor, but your supervisor and your department is also really fortunate to have you coming into that department and, you know, in contributing to, you know, so to knowledge production, right? So like ask certain type of questions when you meet your supervisor, like the right questions about, you know, how you envision this journey and what you want to be doing, you know, and also like, yeah, like all of those things, like don't hide yourself, don't leave anything outside of the door, bring all of yourselves into the space and then watch and observe how that supervisor would react to a lot of those things, you know, and all that kind of stuff so that you can make like an informed decision on whether this is the right person for you. So like, you know, so those are for me, like some of the things that I did and I went and I even met some of the people just going into the department, you know, having conversations with some people in there, you know, that kind of stuff from the admin, like just meeting like different people. I was, I wasn't even registered yet, you know, just to kind of get a sense of, um, in the environment, you know, and also like asking certain type of questions via email and some people they responded in a way that already made me like okay script that you know you, you might be you might be well known in your work and you might be considered amazing but actually no this is not who I need like for my research you know yeah. this is who I need yeah so like those are the things that I can think of um okay yeah and also like well, I, think, I, yeah. I think no go on sorry what were you gonna say Oh, and I was just going to say, like, I think if, if people are thinking about doing, like, decolonial work, I feel like this term, like, decolonial is thrown around a lot. You know, even, like, feminist, like, it's, you know, it's thrown around a lot and we all want to identify with it. But really have an understanding about, like, what, what does that actually mean, like, in practice? How is that going to look like? What does that mean for the research? You know, like, how are you going to be disrupting, you know, uh, the way, you know, like the methodology, whatever, the way that you're doing research. And do you have the courage, you know, to be, you know, to be disrupting and to be standing your ground? I've had to stand my ground, you know, several times, you know, sometimes like with the ethics, you know, for example, you know, like things like that, you know, you know, because I'm really... um you know, like I want to be doing this research like in a particular way. So I think, you know, when someone is like really clear and has an understanding of what they want to do, why they want to do it, and then they can now start to think about how and putting into place the, you know, the, you know, the, the supervisor or supervisors, um, you know, who can support that journey, um, you know. So for example, in my department, I don't even do a lot with the psychology department. Like I don't, do a lot with, with them. I feel like I am doing my PhD in the hub of decolonial feminist psychologists, right. like this space, you know, right. because I have got, I'm under the protection and the support. Like I, you know, tomorrow I'm, I'm off to a writing retreat sponsored for, sponsored for by my supervisor via her project. Like, and these are the things that she has constantly done for us, like every year, going into the mountains, writing retreats, you know, putting, um, into, you know, into place like the spaces that support us and, you know, creating opportunities, seeing us for who we are. 
you know, like all of those things. I think if I'd chosen the wrong supervisor, I would be regretting right now. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the supervisor thing has come up with everybody we've interviewed. Mm, mm. And we kind of have an ongoing fight where everyone's like, mine are the best supervisors. Mm, yeah. <laughs> everyone... See, no, trust mine is my best. Yeah. Mine is the best. Oh, see? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Now you've joined the battle. But I think I'm actually pleased to be having that debate then who's got the worst supervisor, mm, right? Mm, so I think we're mm. fortunate and we need to be grateful, but... I think a running theme that I'm seeing is everyone did a lot of research mm. into the supervisors and the way they approached them and everyone made an effort to get a sense of mm. their supervisor before they jumped on board. Mm. Um, and I think that goes a long way and it's 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 been everybody's story that we interviewed mm. push the supervisor. Your supervisor, your supervisor, your supervisor. Mm. So I'm pleased to hear that for you it's a positive um um relationship. Mm. Um and that yeah, there's all these other things that you get to get exposed to because she's she's a, she's dutiful and um is trying to help you on your side. Mm. I think that's that's really important to acknowledge because some people are really going through it with them. I can't imagine because like I keep saying I've got enough on my plate mm. that to now have supervisors that don't get me that don't see where I'm trying to go that yeah. I feel like I'm constantly fighting with like that would I would give up really yeah. so I, I feel fortunate like you that um, I, have, I have good supervisors yeah. and I think, yeah. I think for me one last thing I guess on the um, um, if someone wants to do a PhD in your field, do they need to have a background in psychology? Like, um, um, is that, do you know if that's a I think it's just, I mean, a, a lot of, um, I mean, at UCT, a lot of people s- seem to have background in psychology. Um, although I think some can also be coming from other disciplines like um oh, I, I i think you do you know i'm not so sure hey because i've only always done psychology but i think um <laughs> I, I know that for example like if you wanted to do forensic psychology that you definitely need background in psychology for sure okay you need big okay. you can't just like i mean it, although there's a way like um i think in the uk it's called like so conversion you can convert so in the UK, yes. you can also convert, like if you did something like, I don't know, counseling psychology, you can convert into a psychology degree. But it means that going and studying on top, like doing another like psychology program, right. something, something and converting into it. So you need psychology because I suppose, you know, I think you do need psychology to something, not so much for a degree. I mean, not so much for a PhD because a PhD, as long as you choose your research, um, and I think because I could have been in a number of you know in a number of faculties to be honest probably yeah, like I could have been in a number of like of you know in a number of disciplines I could have been like in in you know I could have like argued I mean not I could have had a supervisor who's like in law for example and have like another supervisor like in you know somewhere else and I could have like a supervisor in like I don't know 
you know, um, like migration and studies and geography. Actually, when I have yes. done some of my seminars in, in London, I've given a seminar like in the, in the, in the geography department. Yeah, human but, geography. Yes, yeah. yeah, but talking about, you know, um, migration in human geography. So I think if people can fit in into different, as long as you can slot it in for whatever reasons, whether you're following a supervisor. I think the thing is, I, I didn't look so much at like, like the faculties I was looking for supervisors who are doing something that is close to what I want to do right so uh, you met the supervisor in like area in terms of where they're based yeah the, you weren't concerned about that that would come with if you had a perfect match with a supervisor the rest would then fit around that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, th I think I could have gone anywhere because in Europe, it wasn't actually okay. going to be in any of like the psychology departments. It was going to be like in gender and sexuality or something, right. you know, and stuff. But it was good that it was in psychology because I, I want, personally, I wanted to remain in psychology for sure. And personally, okay. I would have liked to be in a forensic psychology department, actually. That is what I would have liked to be, to even make more of a point of why this kind of research, you know, should be done from you know within forensic psychology but yeah i think anyone can be yeah i think as long as like you know it's the supervisor um you know kind of speaks to your work and you could have done like someone could have done like research also on gender-based violence but maybe they're in anthropology for example or yes. in you know in africa studies but then they want to be supervised by you know professor floretta bunzaya who is you know a specialist also on gender-based violence research so yeah so I think it's really about knowing, right. like, yeah, like how that supervisor can fully, like, you know, supervise you well. I, I know that some people choose a supervisor or a department or a faculty uh, for, and I know some people have done this, you know, I didn't do that um, as such because I was so, so stuck on the kind of research that I want to do. Some people go for the funding. So they get the funding first yes. and then they decide to whatever follow, whatever research and whatever have you and all that kind of stuff, according to the supervisor, you know, but I wanted to have the independence and I was really stuck. And so I didn't want that kind of funding that already comes with um, okay. You know, like with an All idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's already that as well, which in that case, you don't really, a lot of people don't need to like, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of like reading that's required, but not too much. You also asked me about working. Sorry, I didn't even respond to that. I'm just like talking, talking. Um, I am working alongside. Um, that has been tough. I don't want to lie. You know, because the PhD itself is like timely. It's really exhausting and it's really demanding. So if I had it my way and if I had funding, I'd rather not be working. I'll be like doing like part time here and there, you know, of course, because, you know, I cannot like not be like engaged in community and stuff, but I would not be working as much as I am working uh, for nice. sure. So I would say that if people can secure full funding for sure, go for that, you know, because the PhD <laughs> in itself is already demanding in many ways. Like it takes so much of your time to be doing like the writing, the reading and all of that kind of stuff. You know, it's like, it's, it's a full time work in itself 
you know, so if you can get funding, definitely go for funding. But if you cannot get full funding, that's not the end of the world. I am doing it and I've done it. So you yeah, can definitely do it. You're the inspiration. You know, yeah. And thankfully to my community, like I feel so grateful for the community, you know, global community that came through, you know, for me. And I am always going to be grateful. And um, yeah, and then I keep them up to date with like a newsletter, like every year, like an update of the PhD and the kind of work that oh, I've been fantastic. doing, you know, uh, stuff that I'm like, you know, um, you know, publishing and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just, I just feel so, I feel so fortunate in that way. And I think it feels so easy because I also feel so held by a community of people, yeah. you know, who have supported me financially in some ways in that way, you know, which might not seem like it's a lot, but to me, like, it's a lot, like it's a lot, lot. And I'm so grateful for it. And also like a community of people that are just there for me, holding space for me while it's I going through this PhD journey, but I cannot wait to finish. <laughs> Do you think you're being Zimbabwe? Um, or even a Zimbabwean woman made makes your experience unique. Like, do you think there's anything about that identifying yourself as that that has made your PhD experience unique? Yes, I'm, I I think because being Zimbabwean, you know, already sort of like being Zimbabwean already sort of like kind of brings to the forefront like all these like, you know, intersectional identities of me being black, being woman, right? Being African and then being queer and then being a migrant and a refugee, like in all of this <laughs> stuff, you know. So it really definitely does make me special, you know, in, in some ways. But, you know, but then, you know, jokes aside, it does make my... PhD experience and even doing this kind of work like unique um, also you know because well one I mean already like for example the forensic psychology I mean I know only one other Zimbabwean I think no, no I know two now who were also like in forensic psychology so it was very difficult to even crack into you know so being Zimbabwean itself was quite a unique you know, um, you know, having English as second language and looking the way that I look and then being like unapologetically Zimbabwean, even the way that I dressed at work and all that kind of stuff. So even within the academic space, I mean, I've got like a whole huge ancestral traditional tattoo on my chest, which I do not hide, okay. you know, and I and I really speak about my Zimbabweanness and my Africanness and my blackness, which I've now embraced, you know, since we're kind of moving to the UK, which is like a story for another time because in Zimbabwe I didn't even identify as being black right so like all these issues around identity and then you know and then doing your research in the diaspora you know so is this notion of being like in the diaspora and being who I am and with all of these identities I mean it would have been really difficult and challenging just being Zimbabwean and being black and then on top of that like all of these other identities so for sure you know um I think, you know, for a lot of Zimbabweans, outside of Zimbabweans, you know, who are studying away from family, you know, who have had to like migrate and kind of conducting this, you know, their studies away from like their ancestral lands, you know, from their family and friends and kind of dealing with, you know, sometimes new, um, you know, experiences around like racism, right? Around exclusion, um, you know, dealing with like, you know, um, you know, systems that either, you know, want to invisibilize us or don't want to even recognize us and want to exclude us, you know, for just being 
African or being Zimbabwean. I think that in itself like kind of really makes this journey um, quite unique. I mean, even in South Africa in itself, there's a lot of like xenophobia as well, which has been going on like in the last couple of years. So it's been really interesting as a Zimbabwean. Um, you know, to being here. Although, you know, I have felt, I personally have felt safe and I have felt held by a lot of like South Africans who have considered my friends, you know, and family. Uh, but then I've also experienced um, xenophobia, even within the academic space, just because I'm Zimbabwean. So all of those things, you know, because of all these identities and specifically for just being Zimbabwean, um, I've, I've even had people saying, how, how dare you? Like, why come and do a PhD in South Africa when you're Zimbabwean. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, wow. you know? And and I think even in the UK, there's even been a question of like, you're a forensic psychologist, like people not expecting me to be a forensic psychologist. I remember, you know, um, going like to give evidence, like in parole boards, people assuming that I was a relative of a prisoner rather than as a wow. forensic psychology coming in. So yeah, so all of these things of because of who we are and all these identities that we embody, uh, which often then if you're Zimbabwean, they are multiple, um, yeah. you know, if you're not even born like in the UK. But then with that also, we don't, um, you know, arrive into these spaces with like a lot of like privilege, uh, maybe to someone maybe who's holding like a British passport, for example, or who was, you know, uh, born like, let's say in the UK, who has, you know, so a different level of command of English, for example, yeah. you know, yeah. I was speaking to someone actually from Uganda, you know, today and um, who's contributing to my research and, you know, and they were saying... English just like runs away from me <laughs> all the time. Like when I'm studying and I'm trying to write and I'm trying to articulate myself, I know what I want to say, but it's just, I just cannot articulate it. You know, so something even as simple as that, and this is something that I even hear from colleagues, you know, yeah. who are from the, um, you know, so from the global South, you know, so either from Zimbabwe, we have conversation with some of, you know, Zimbabwean, um, you know, PhD students and, you know, and some postdoctors to be like, even just having English as a second language in itself is a challenge, yeah. you know? So, yeah. I don't know if that, that oh, answers, wow. if that's what you had in mind. No, 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 you definitely have. I think it's all part of embracing all these identities that come with us. But I think first and foremost, we are Zimbabwean. I think that's something that I'm also very proud of. First, I'm Zimbabwean, then the rest comes. So um, I think also like something that you mentioned earlier, which was, you know, the confidence that Zimbabweans have, I would say the resilience as well and the value that we put on education. That's always flowing when people are like education, education. My parents were like education, education. So I, I've definitely seen um, that come up a lot when I'm asking people about their own experiences but this is one conversation where we've gone more into depth about the identity side and what that gives us whether it's challenges or advantages 
Um, so yeah, so I appreciate you actually taking it yeah. there. And actually, you know, I was gonna say that because, like, I think for some people, me doing a you know a PhD might be like unique, but actually, to Zimbabweans, it's not. I know so many Zimbabweans who are doing PhDs or have completed their PhDs or chose not to do a PhD for whatever reason, you know, uh, because like you said, I think a lot of us come from these like you know backgrounds and environments where like education has been so instilled, like. You know, like there's like I, I think that has been like also being supported by this like you know um you know um you know the like colonial idea of like education is gonna be like the savior in you know in a way yeah. that's what's gonna save us right but then also I think because a lot of I was saying to someone recently that a lot of our parents because I'm you know I'm a 1980s child actually I was born in 1980 you know when we got independence and I remember people like my okay. parents going I'm, my parents going back to school because at some point you know President Robert Mugabe um, you know I don't know if you record this but there was a time when you know um, adults could go back to school because you know prior to that so prior to independence and um and due to like you know Rhodesian like colonial you know um apartheid whatever view that a lot of uh, our parents couldn't access education you know so one of those people was my mom you know so she had to finish like it wasn't even formed to it was something called something something can't remember what it was called now when she talks about it so something and then my father was the one who was able to finish education and then he became a, a scientist so it's called in metrology uh, but my okay. mother couldn't and my mother was doing a levels all levels at the same time as me so the was a time when you know adults could go back to school and doing like night school i don't know if you record this like a lot of our yes. parents were going to school like night school so it was instilled quite early on like education so even our parents were going to school right like night school doing my mother was doing like all level and then did like a level accounts and retrained wow. went back to work so it was instilled in us that, you know, education, yes, you can be creative. So you could be like writing, painting and doing arts and music. Yes. But you, what, what else are you going to, what else are you going to be doing? You're going to be a lawyer and accountant and doctor yeah. and whatever, you know, like how are your all levels and A levels looking? And I remember my parents, like weekends, we had like private tuition. We were not rich, you know, we're sort of like under lower, you know, lower middle class. I mean, actually even our home, cause we didn't even have like a swimming pool where we lived but it's like in a middle class environment without a swimming yeah. pool so we're considered poor for that environment it's like they didn't even have a swimming pool you know and yet my parents were working so hard to make sure that you know me and my siblings had like private tuition like every weekend so it was really more like they were always working for their children, like your education, you know, like education. So I feel like a lot of Zimbabweans, this is something that was instilled in us. And I think that really shows even the way that we approach um, education and institutions and the way that we work. You know, yes. so like, it's not even like unique. Like I've met so many Zimbabweans here who are just like so amazing and so articulate and just like your PhD is yeah. like yeah whatever you know because a lot of them like have you know and a lot of them can hold you know that space and it's been instilled in us and we are coming from that kind of like background so I think for Zimbabweans especially like in comparison to other people from other African countries I think that makes yes. us quite unique you know yes, um, in some ways 
It does. And I can see how also like even in some universities, um, you know, they are ready to sort of like kind of welcome us because of that sort of like kind of how, I don't know whether like principled is the word and, and how we approach, you know, studies and, you know, and work and, you know, and education in that way um, has become sort of like kind of, yeah, like that can maybe like, you know, put us at a more like, you know, advantage. So from, I couldn't get into a university in Zimbabwe when I left, uh, you know, and I, sh- I should just like be honest about this. Like I couldn't get into a university in Zimbabwe after my A-levels because it was considered not good enough. I couldn't even do, because at the time things like teaching and nursing were what were considered like if you got like lower mask for your A-levels, you could do that in a university. I couldn't even get through into that either. University of Zimbabwe was like, nah. My local university, Midlands, was like, nah. You know, so the only place I could get to was actually South Africa. They were like, yeah, you can come and do law here. I was like, okay. And then when I went to the UK, they looked at my um, A-level and O-level certificates. They were like, oh, it's in collaboration with Cambridge. Your B is an A. Your C is a B. Your D is a C, a B, or a C plus or B plus. You, you can definitely do psychology here. I was like, okay. So, some, so sometimes, you know, and, and we often laugh about this with some of my friends. So I was in a group of like five girls. <coughs> You know, where we were friends, you know, um, you know, and then then so two of us actually doing psychology. The other one is also at UCT. The other one, you know, uh, went to the UK and actually went back and did her A levels and passed them with A's and did medicine. <laughs> but we all, according to Zimbabwean standards, we failed, all five of us. Yeah. The other one went and did like accounts, but via like the military route in the UK. But, okay. and the other one did nursing. So like all five of us like did well after our A-levels because where we went, wow. the, edu- the Zimbabwean education, when looked at the certificates, they were like, yeah, no, it's not a fail here. It's, it's a pass. You can definitely do this. So that's also like really telling, I think, about, you know, um, the kind of spaces that were sort of like kind of available. You know, I don't know whether, I mean, like, you know, there are also like lots of other things in there around colonialism and coloniality and the raw and whatever yeah, have you I, I think and stuff. But that's like a whole different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but so, I, yeah. I can totally appreciate like, and I'm glad you can appreciate that as well, mm. kind of expanding on what I've said. Mm. Um, I suppose the last question, really, um, Sky, is like, so what's what's the plan for when you finish? Like, so, do you have a plan? Or I, yeah. Are you going to go to academia, research, you know? Who? You know, first and foremost, I am a practitioner. I'm definitely a practitioner, you know, so I like to do, I like to work with people, like applying psychology, like in practice, being a practitioner, you know, and kind of holding space in that way. So that's always been me. And I don't know whether that's also like something that I've also like inherited, you know, from my grandfather being like a, you know, a traditional healer. And, you know, and this is, I suppose, what I call like, you know, being a healer, like for myself, but it's sort of like kind of using like Western modalities, I suppose. Well, I don't know if I'm aware about using Western modalities because I still draw from like, 
you know, ancestral ways of thinking and whatever have you and all that kind of stuff. So, but then I, you know, being a psychologist can also be seen as like being a healer, you know, in some ways. So I'm really like, you know, a practitioner in my bones. But do I like teaching and contributing to academia? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Uh, but I think the thing that draws me the most into academia is research and my understanding okay. of how that research can make an impact and can make a difference and how you know we need to like disrupt to like who so the gatekeepers of the you know of knowledge production and stuff so i want to yes. definitely contribute to that uh so i want to be in academia yes but i don't know about full time you know i'm still trying to figure it out at the moment okay. so i still want to finish my qualification you know as a practitioner and i'm still thinking about how that might look like um you know whether in terms of like forensic or clinical or even both but then at the same time okay. i also don't want to be like working for the rest of my life i'm also a traveler so i'm also planning to go to korea for like a year or two cuz i love to travel oh the world gosh. You're gonna love it. I went there for a week or oh, awesome. I can't remember. Yeah. South Korea, oh, the best time. Really? Of my life. I went with my best friend. Yeah. And we literally were like, we can see ourselves here. Like, right. It is amazing right so do go so yeah so i've also been like looking into like universities in japan and south korea to see if i can be based there somewhat doing some sort of contributing some kind of research or in their department to see if i can even develop my own program that i can teach i think they need to you know something like run psychology race and whatever i don't know who knows you know so yeah so i'm really like you know i am a traveler so i think is um but for now i see myself as being in cape town for now uh, i'm going to be in the uk soon um hopefully before the year ends to collect my data and of course my visa expires like i've got like a 3 year student visa expires in february next year so i need to kind of like figure it out uh but i'm going to be in the uk at some stage because i also need but i also want to have a baby so i'm planning to have a baby next year <laughs> So I think having a baby might take priority. Having a baby and traveling might take priority. And then everything yeah. else would just like so, slot into into that. And so and I'm planning to have a baby by myself, so that's going to be like a, you know challenging enough and stuff, but I also want to be traveling, you know, being in Asia and stuff. So yeah, so I'm trying to figure it all out. So I don't I don't quite know fully where I would be. We've managed to make it to the end of the oh of the interview <laughs> um but i've thoroughly enjoyed it and remember like when we started you were like oh i don't know if i'll remember everything and look at you reeling everything off you were just and and it's been great um hearing your your journey and for me i hope our listeners are inspired to you know one challenge the system um that's something i'm 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 learning from you challenge the system you know push back but also look out for your well-being number one comes first and also build a community have a community around you and yeah this this thing that we were talking about like exchanging 
um, not extractive interactions. Um, and I think also, yeah, just being bold, like um, hearing your story, you've had to make it a lot of bold decisions, going to study in South Africa um, without funding, um, your topic in itself, staying true to who you are. Um, and yeah, like, so I, I'm encouraged and I hope our listeners are as well so thank you sky for for sharing your experience no no thank you so much you know for inviting me um to share the experiences and i hope that they you know either encourage someone who's listening and also they make other people not feel like they're alone and also leave other people feeling like if sky can do it i can do it um because yeah because definitely if i can do it anyone can do it and yeah and we need more people that look like us you know kind of like making this so disruption so people not be um feeling like you know um these spaces are not for them you know they are for yes. you and also yeah. like you know thinking about how we can disrupt them and um and sometimes even like going in and destroying and then starting again you know i don't know what that would look think- like you know but yeah that's definitely the ethos of this podcast where we were like a lot of people are like oh phd oh it seems overwhelming like where do i even start like can i you know, so we wanted to demystify the process, like just explain how, like how you went through it, what your thoughts were and all of this. And then also build a network, like a community, a network of of um, people who no matter where they are in the world, um, but they are Zimbabwean and um in, to to encourage others to inspire others to to and and also like in building the network and people sharing their experiences people learn and they start on a different level right they don't have to go through some of the rubbish things that we went through they don't have to teach themselves they can start on a different level they can now learn new things and impart that knowledge onto the next cohort and then it becomes like that so um yeah that's definitely what we're about so guys sky just before you go um i know some people might want to get in touch are you on social media or do you want people to reach out via our platform um yes i am i mean if anyone has any questions i am definitely on social media i'm on facebook so i think on facebook i think i might be under sky tinevimbo so okay. I think if you put like Sky uh, underscore Tinevimbo, I think I should come up. I'm trying to use more and more of my Shona name lately. <laughs> and then I'm also on Instagram, but it's a little bit of more like a private space. So sometimes I don't always okay. add people, um, you know, but I've got a website. So like, you know, www.skyetsh.com. So Sky Shuki, which has been like my nickname for a while so people can find me and then also like the same like skyshuki um at gmail.com so s-k-y-e but then i can send you the details as well and you can add yes, them on your own so on your platform not, yeah if anyone's not getting that we'll type it in the caption yeah. when we release the episode um so that people can do it. and we're always happy um through our um, um 
Instagram page, hand me a podcast, or through our email, hand me a podcast at gmail.com to, to connect anyone who wants to to have a conversation with you. Um and I know this is not the last time. Yeah, and I'm really open to like questions. So if someone was thinking about, you know, um having a journey, like a PhD journey, or even on issues relating to gender and sexuality, migration, you know, that kind of stuff, like you know, uh decolonial feminist practices, um activism and someone just wants to connect and feels like what I've been speaking about speaks to their work and to them, you know, like I'm, I'm really open to like answering questions and linking up with people and like building a network and a community like in that way, especially of, you know, of Zimbabweans, you know, like my Zimbabwean people, you know, yeah, my Zimbabwean so, people. No, no, I, 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 I appreciate your being very open and approachable. Like we've, we've met through a friend um, on Instagram and we've just hit it off and so I can definitely encourage people to 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 reach out to you and like I said um, we will share your details when we post um, the episode on Instagram and as always guys please share subscribe and yeah give feedback on how you found this interview that we had with Sky we would love to hear from you so until the next time take care guys Thanks so much, Sky. Bye.